Discretion is advised. This is the cul-de-sac insomniac, and I'm Ophelia. And I'm Tori, and we're going to keep you up all night. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Good, good. I'm ready to be creeped out. What about you? I'm, I'm always ready to be creeped out. Yeah, me too. Once again, we're recording late at night, not in the morning like we always say we're going to do. So it should be extra spooky. Right. We're like, okay, this time we're going to do it early. It'll be light out. No, it's 9.30 p.m. So <laughs> we made attempts. We failed. Who's surprised? Yeah, we just were... I don't know what's going on. The last couple of weeks we've had... This, it's always something. Yep. It's something every time we try to do an episode. Either it's like there was electronic things for a while, then there was like... Right. Technology wouldn't work. So the last couple of weeks, um, our editor ended up in the ER, and then... My daughter ended up in the ER, and then I was sick, and it was just one thing after another, so... Uh, our editor said, like, a bunch of terrible things kept happening when she was trying to edit our last episode. Like, oh, right. files literally just removed oh. themselves from her computer and then also removed themselves from the drive where we keep them. And do you remember we brought the whole Amazon network down? Oh, that's true. Yeah, you guys might have noticed that episode five went up really late. Yep. Uh, that's because we submitted our episode and then uh, all of Amazon Web Services, which we use Anchor to distribute, uh, and that's part of Amazon yep. Web Services. So that just all went down pretty much as soon as... Instantaneously. Yeah. Went down for the entire day. It came up at like 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. So sorry. Yeah. That was us. That was that, that was, was our bad. ectoplasm. Just whoops. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, all that, of that Amazon. That was the portal that we accidentally opened so yeah whoops on that one we 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 could i mean we could play it one of two ways we could stop right or we could just keep infecting the world with with our ectoplasm i mean i think we're just gonna have to yeah we're just gonna have to lean in you know what i mean i don't think we have any other choices i feel like we're in it now yeah you know you're in it now you know just go for it just gonna have to see what happens ride the ride what's the worst that could happen why not yeah yeah how bad could it get I'm curious to find out. So you got any um any creepy news for me? Anything weird happened to you this week? I got nothing. So I haven't I haven't had any paranormal stuff happening and you know, nothing's been happening to me, but uh in uh in Waltham, a suburb of Boston where I some of my friends live, because we live in Massachusetts, um, there's been a man who's just been hiding, like in the bushes. And then jumping out and bludgeoning people from behind. What? And he's attacked like a dozen people so far in a couple of weeks. And hopefully by the time this episode gets posted, because we're a couple weeks ahead, uh, hopefully that guy has been caught. But yeah, like seriously injuring people. Like I think one guy had like a broken orbital bone or something. Oh my God. Yeah. It's not good. It's really scary. And like... Why do people suck? I... I don't understand. And, like, he's attacked a lot of people in a not very long period of time. So 
the the city I think or the state has offered a five thousand dollar reward. So if you know anything about that, please let them know because that's that's so five thousand dollars. Can you spare the change? Yeah. See, I know. I know. I don't get why. P- I don't. I don't get the going way out of your way Mm-mm. to to. Do things like that, and and for what? Like I, I get like yeah. I don't know if I get it, but I, you know, in a, like a transactional crime. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we talk about this every week. You know, people rob because they want the money. Yeah. Every week. Yeah. Every week. We don't get people. No. We don't get that kind of the just just doing it to do it. I don't. I don't get it. And it's a lot of effort. Yeah. No, thankfully everyone survived so far, but like so scary and just like so far I think it's only been men and like one of the people at least was like a post man and like ugh that's so awful especially because he's just doing it in this same town so this poor postman could have it happen to him again if he's delivering mail in the same town like do you know how many jobs that I can't do because I'm basically a coward yeah for me it's pretty much all of them postman pizza delivery instacart I I thought briefly about doing uber but then I'm like then you gotta they gotta be in their car what if it's a nut and then I thought uber eats oh what if they're just luring you out there under the guise of Uber Eats and they're just going to jump you and they figure you have money or taxi mm-hmm. driver, firefighter, forget it. No. Uh, anything kind of thing like that. I work in an office and somebody's like, oh, I'm leaving. I'm like, wait for me. I will lock up with you. Like, I'm not going to be in this building alone, which like nothing bad is going to happen. Oh, same, same here. Anytime I go to work someplace, I figure out where all the exits are yeah. and how fast I could get to one in case there was a shooter. Yep. Like, that's how I think. Yeah. That's how my mind works. If I go on a plane, I figure out where the emergency exit is and I count with my hand. The, I really do this with the yeah. the seats with my hand so that if I'm blind blinded by smoke or whatever, I could count with my hand how many seats I have to go by to get to the emergency exit because I'm a nut. That's so smart. And that's how I... Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's our family, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that that came from Nanny. That's really a direct genealogical line right down through all of People us. People say I'm paranoid. I say I'm hyper aware. Exactly. Because, hey, it's always better to be prepared than not. I'm in just a state of constant alert. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The pandemic is terrible, but I don't hate never leaving my house or not letting people see my face. Yeah. Or come within six feet of me. That's the, like, truthfully, I wear a mask now, but I didn't really go any, go anywhere before, so <laughs> hasn't been that different. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little concerned about how little of a difference I noticed. <laughs> yeah, I do feel like perhaps I should take a look at my life, you know, after this is all over. Apparently my preferred lifestyle is called quarantine. Mm, yes, exactly. I find it, you know, pretty much the same. All right, so do you want to hear what my topic is today? <gasps> I don't, and I do, so please tell me. It, it, my topic is reenactors' ghost stories. Like living history reenactors. <gasps> Ooh, oh my goodness, this is, oh, I love this. This is so exciting. Yeah, and what, what sparked me to look into this is that we got listener email. <gasps> Ooh, yay! From reenactors who had 
um, a couple supernatural experiences, and apparently this is the tip of the iceberg, <gasps> the couple that she sent me. Oh, my God. So it's from a listener named Amanda, oh. and she and her husband, Russ, are reenactors, and they're mostly colonial reenactors, but apparently what I found is that the bulk of um, reenactor ghost stories come from Civil War reenactors, mm. and some of the stories are cool. Some of them are pretty mild, and you think, mm, maybe it is, maybe it's just the place... You know it's steeped in history. I always wonder when people are at places that they are aware are deeply important historical sites, mm. how much our psyche plays into it. But a couple of the experiences, right? they're pretty interesting. So um, so these aren't really, you know, this, these are just more cool. They're not as deep into the spook as we've gotten, but that's okay. I'm in the mood for something a little bit less, especially where it's like, 9.30 at night, but hey. Well, this is exciting. Thank you, Amanda, for sending this in. It is exciting. Thank you so much. And by the way, we love it. If you guys want to send us any stories, cul-de-sac-insomniac at gmail.com. Hit us up. Yes. We Any kind of creepy story, even a crime story, if you know of any kind of, you know, sort of weird, any kind of, all the creepy stuff. Tales of High Strangers. Yeah. Let us have it. If, yeah, if there's something that, like, you want to inspire us with, you want us to, like, go find more information and cover it on the show, or if something happened to you or somebody you know, we'd love to tell those stories. Absolutely. All right. I'm going to start with her email, and then I'm going to look into some of the, read some of the other stories that I found of reenactors who had these um, spooky experiences. Um, I'm not going to read the very beginning of her email. It's just a little, like, it, it, she just kind of sets the stage, but I'm going to get right into it. Um, so she says, when Russ and I were active in reenacting, we would go to Fort Ticonderoga every year. Multiple years I had experiences in and around the fort, two experiences that I had stand out. The more minor one happened as follows. It was mid-afternoon, sunny and cool for mid-September. Russ and some members of the unit were drilling in the woods by the French lines, and I was there since I was portraying the bugler for the regiment. As the men were drilling, they were not firing, but going through the motions and yelling bang when they were at the point of the drill when they would be firing. As they were doing this, I kept hearing muskets firing off to my right through the woods. There were no other units drilling near us. We were completely alone. It was that lull between lunch and the afternoon battle. Everyone else at the reenactment was relaxing or readying their equipment for the battle. As I kept looking to my right, Russ noticed and asked what was up. When I told him and the other members of the unit what I was hearing, they all turned to look where I was gesturing. As they turned, I saw and heard the muskets fire. It was not fired at us, but parallel to where we were. No one else in the unit saw it. One person claimed they heard it, but thought it was the afternoon battle that might be starting. We ran back to the camp to join the afternoon battle to find out that the battle wasn't starting for an hour and there would have been no one firing in that area because of safety concerns due to the tourists. During this whole time, I felt like I was nervous, scared, confused, like I was in the middle of a battle and calm, focused, like I knew it was all pretend. That's so weird. Which, that is weird to just hear and and it's just kind of off right in the distance but you definitely can hear it i don't know what she meant by she saw it but i don't know if she meant she saw like a flash or like the puff of smoke right because um so you probably remember way back in the day um 
your Uncle Kenny and um, Papa, they used to do reenacting and we'd go along once in a while. Um, but they would go into battles and march and go on parades. And so when they would fire the muskets, it, it wouldn't have a musket ball, obviously, because you'd kill somebody, but they still, but they had the powder and everything. You still couldn't put, even though it didn't have a musket ball, you couldn't put that up against someone and fire. You could still kill them right. just from the impact. Right. But um, so they would not, you couldn't just fire them anywhere. You had to be in certain places and right. it was all very controlled. But you could see like the little puff and, and then you could smell that sulfur, sulfur smell. smell. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting too because like a reenactor knows what an actual musket sounds like more than right. somebody else might too. Right. And knows what right. that would look like. That's so interesting. This next one's pretty weird. The second instance happened on another reenactment at Fort Ty. It was Saturday night and a group of us were wandering around the fort, exploring the, the historic buildings at night. When we walked around the battlefield, when our mock battles would take place, all of a sudden I felt that someone took over my body and I became a soldier who was trying to retreat to my company, who was withdrawing to boats to cross the river. Russ had to physically hold my arm and the group held a full-blown conversation with me that wasn't me. Oh my God. I have actual goosebumps right now. That's insane. That is insane. The best I can explain it is I was there, but pushed to the back of my mind. I could hear what was being said and I could hear the responses and it was in my voice, but I had no idea what the answers were going to be to the questions being asked. Ah! Oh. The group got freaked out a little and decided to go back to the encampment as we were leaving the mock battlefield. The spirit left, and then I saw a dead British soldier laying in the grass. <gasps> what? Yeah. Oh my God. Okay, I appreciate that they're like, I guess we'll go back. Cause what do you do if all of a sudden, like <laughs> somebody's just not themselves, they're just answering questions as a ghost. Oh, they're like, oh. <laughs> And, and with seeing the dead British soldier, did it, was it, I mean, was it a British soldier? Like, he just wanted you, I just wanted you to know that I was here. This is where right. I died. Right. Oh, oh my goodness. That's so scary. And to just like be scary. in your own mind, but you're not the one. And you can't control. Oh. Right. Oh, top five things I don't ever want to have happen to me. <laughs> no. Ugh. No. But... I, I I wonder about that too, just like with just the whole ghost thing generally. Yeah. Like they say sometimes that they're here because they don't know they're dead, but if they're showing you their death, then they know that they're dead. Like why are they still hanging around? I mean, unless he didn't know, he, unless he was like, please help, you know? Yeah, I don't really, I know they talk about they have unfinished business, but if you die and then realize you're still conscious, doesn't that mean your business is never really finished? You know, I don't really get that. Like, it, 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 I don't I don't get it because if, if you if you pass on and then realize, oh, I'm still actually alive, I'm not in that body, but existence continues on you don't it doesn't occur to you okay this is what happens to everyone and I can just finish this business later or that business is not that important because here I am still that like yeah. it's just it's it's weird to me that I mean it if it's real if this is I feel like it is right. but nobody really knows and I don't know but I don't um I just don't really get it I don't get 
realizing that there's more to life than this, but your attachment to this just keeps you from moving on. Yeah. I, and, and I hope I don't ever find out, but... I mean, so I can understand there being, like, some unfinished business right after you die, but, like, not 250 years later. Even the wanting someone to get justice for your murder, uh, I mean, I get wanting that. Right. Or just maybe trying to communicate with your family, hey, I'm okay, I just want you to right. be okay. But to be there hundreds of years after it happened like there's what can you set right at that point just go on but right everyone else is already gone now too i don't right i mean you can't even i don't know you can't make it right and i don't you know they talk about like when we had the one about cemetery the cemetery that it got dug up and yeah. and like if the bodies were buried if they weren't at rest and i don't know why that would matter if you realized you were a soul Right. Like, it, it seems to me that body and what happened to that vessel would just not be important anymore. Yeah, I mean... I don't think it would be important to me. I don't know. I I don't... Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, can see, I can see it being important, like I said, like immediately, but not, you know, once everybody else that you ever knew was also dead. I'm more inclined to think you do just move on in whatever form. Right. But if something really, really tragic or emotional or really significant happens you like stamp that energy on the environment right the like residual kind of energy because we talked about how there aren't super super they only go back so far and that that energy just probably dissipates over time right right probably i'm i'm more inclined to think i know some of them they say are intelligent hauntings but maybe that's not really maybe those entities aren't really human <laughs> maybe they're just taking that on i don't know i don't like that either i don't like that either maybe some of them just like that place they're like hey i built this house i like it i said i was gonna live here forever and i'm gonna live here forever and i can now right. so i'm just gonna do that yeah maybe you're not stuck maybe people can go in and out maybe maybe that dimension's like right here and you just go in and out right yeah maybe people just find haunting fun Who's to say? <laughs> like the ghost clothes. Yes. Remember we talked about the ghost clothes? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to put on my ghost clothes and go ghosting. Yeah, be like, oh, got to put on my 18th century nightgown. Let's let's get out here, freak some people out. Yeah, maybe really it's like a Monster Sink situation and we just won't know. So here's, um, let me get, oh, this is a short one, but it's a cool one. So this one I found um, on this is another podcast I listened to. This is from realghoststoriesonline.com. Actually, this is this was quite a while ago they had this episode, but I I do put the link to their YouTube channel to this um to this they put their podcast on YouTube as well. So cool. Um and I'm just I'm just going to read the summation of it and and I don't know quite what to make of this story. In summer of 2009, um, there were some reenactors, and actually the, the group that this happened to were from New Hampshire, but they were portraying the second Massachusetts. So they were at Spangler Spring at Gettysburg and were commemorating the July 3rd, 1863 battle, where the second Massachusetts and the 27th Indiana Regiment suffered massive casualties. So apparently the story with Spangler's Spring is that the battle would be over and like the Confederate and Union soldiers would kind of go down there together, fill their canteens and like chit chat. 
And then the next day go back and start fighting again? That's crazy. That night, as the group sat around the fire, a tall, at least six and a half feet tall, bearded man in very authentic looking, very roughed up, a union uniform appeared and said he was looking for the 27th Indiana. The reenactors told him they were the 2nd Massachusetts and 27th Indiana, although the people from 27th Indiana didn't recognize him. At that, the tall man nodded and walked off into the darkness and didn't return. The next morning before the reenactment, the group attended an educational program about the Hoosier Regiment, where they learned about the tallest man in the regiment, Captain David Van Buskirk, who was six feet, 10 and a half inches tall and weighed about 375 pounds. The group portraying 2nd Massachusetts were from New England and not familiar with the story of Van Buskirk. Mm -hmm. When a vintage photo of the captain was passed around, the reenactors were shocked to see that it was the man who approached them at the fire. He never showed up for the lecture or for the battle afterward and no one else reported seeing him. So I did a little research on Van Buskirk and he survived the Civil War. He didn't die. And he returned home to Monroe County, Indiana. He got married, he survived three wives, had eight children, and he served on the school board and died in his 60s of a pretty, like, decent life. That's so weird. So it is weird, but what a fantastic prank that would be. Oh, seriously. If you just happen to be that tall. If you look like him and you maybe you're a relative. Yeah. Maybe you're a descendant. Or you're just gigantic. You're six foot ten and a half. And look like him because he was pretty distinctive looking. So I'm going to put his picture. Ooh, um, yeah. Up. We'll, we'll put that up when we get it. And he was known as um, the giant in the cornfield. And he was called them the biggest Yankee. The world's bit, and so I don't know what to think of that because he didn't die in that battle, right. even though most of the regiment did. He didn't, right? And um, I'm sort of inclined to think that would just be a fantastic prank. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that maybe. Would just be, I mean, I'd do it. Yeah, but how often are you gonna get that opportunity? I'm six foot ten. I look like this guy in the Civil War. Yeah, I'm gonna prank some reenactors. Yeah, especially when you know the next day they're going to learn all about you, that would be pretty superb. (laughs) And then you just get off and you just get in your car and go home. Right, because you're like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do with these Civil War clothes, but wow, that's crazy. Or hilarious. I don't know which, or perhaps both. So um, this is another Civil War one. Um, Devil's Den has been the source of many other world encounters for quite some time. One compelling tale comes from a Harrisburg Telegraph article dating back to 1939. It tells the story of a man driving along in his car when he noticed two uniformed soldiers carrying rifles and walking on the side of the road. The man pulled over to them and noticed that their uniforms were quite old. The fellow asked the two men if they needed help and they replied that their friend was injured and needed assistance. The soldiers prompted the man to follow them to a nearby tree, which was propping up another one of these uniformed soldiers. This one was dying from a severe chest wound. Panicked, the man said he'd get help and frantically drove to the nearest gas station. Upon telling the cashier what he had just witnessed, he was told not to bother and that the soldiers wouldn't be there when he returned because apparently that happened all the time. What? To people in that area. No! (laughs) Yep. It happens so often. She said, no, don't bother. People come in here all the time with those guys and you'll go out there and there won't be anything there. Okay. How do you live in a place where you're like, oh, oh, those those dying soldiers back at it again? Like, I don't I I would move. I would just move. (laughs) 
I just would not be able to live in that place where, like, that's just happening all the time. Frank, Jacob, I told you to knock it off. What the heck? <laughs> what the? Seriously. Oh, that's so crazy. And that just, like, happens all the time. So these, they're just, like, on this loop. That's terrible. That sucks. And that, I got that from civilwarghost.com, hauntings at Devil's Den. And where, where is Devil's Den? Is that Pennsylvania? That is, it's, I believe, from a Harrisburg Telegraph. So that's going to be Pennsylvania. It's, yeah, that's, that's down. There's a lot, a lot went on in Pennsylvania, mm, I feel like. Yeah, that feels like a ripe, ghosty spot. Yeah. And then the last story I have. All right, so this is just a story. I, I'm not sure what this is, but it was, um, so there was reenactors, part of the Palmetto Battalion, and they put on an annual event in Rivers Bridge in South Carolina. And this story, funnily enough, came from TripAdvisor. Someone wrote this as a review on Rivers Bridge, and it was an experience he had. See, I dug deep for these stories. Yeah, I can tell. Um, (laughs) What a source. He was the captain of the 137th New York Volunteers and the 7th South Carolina Volunteers. So, And they were allowed to camp on the actual battlefield along with the wives and children, all dressed in period attire. Mm. Um, and so you weren't allowed to, and we I've been to events like this where you were not allowed to have visible anything modern. So the cars couldn't even be near where you were. If there were bathrooms, it was a hall. It, anything that was visible within the entire area, it had to be period. Yeah, better keep your cell phone in your tent. So he was walking with his wife and kids. They had gone to the bathrooms and showers. And they were walking um, back from camp along a path through the woods. And so, and believe me, when I went on these camps and you can't use actual light and there's no light around, it is, you haven't seen dark, mm-hmm. like 18th and 19th century dark. It got, it was dark. I don't, modern people don't see dark like people used to see dark right. back in the day. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So they're walking back from the showers and just to try to scare his two kids, he kept shining the flashlight down the path and then turning the light off and on and saying, did you see that? Did you see that? And then to his surprise, he turned the flashlight on, shined it down the trail. And there was just this black cloud about two feet high and three feet long floating about two feet off the (gasps) ground. No. And it was just and it blacked out everything behind it. Oh. And it was moving up the trail towards them. Oh, my God. No, thanks. No, 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 no. <laughs> so they stopped on the trail, my daughter, son, wife, and I, and we watched it as, it as it continued moving up the trail. It wasn't an animal because it was up off the ground. It was just floating. Ugh. Um, it, had, it didn't have eyes, legs, wings, nothing. And he could shine the light under it and around it, but the light wouldn't penetrate through it. It would just, like, stop dead. When the light got to about six feet from us, I stepped aside and moved my family aside. So we stepped out of the way and it went not three feet from us when it passed. And it just sucked the light up as it went. Ew. And he said it was just like blacker than black. It was blacker than the darkness. What the fuck? And I mean, I guess could it be fog? I guess it could be. Uh. I mean, that's a weird position, but I've had fog in the road. I know that I've driven in fog and that, I mean, I don't know why it would be black, but I've driven in fog and you know how the light just kind of, it won't go through? I guess, but like it turns white though. 
like the light goes in. So I bent over and shined the light under it and it continued up the path so he could see that it had nothing holding it up because he could shine the light underneath it. <sighs> the whole family witnessed this together. After the cloud passed, I turned to my wife and said, what did you see? And before she could answer, my 12-year-old son said, Dad, it looked like a black, little black cloud just traveling down the trail. Ugh. How did they have the presence of mind to be like, let us see if there's anything holding this? Like, I would just be running and screaming in the opposite direction. There's, there's Yelling, no, no, yeah, there's no, no situation where I'm like, hell no. Yes, darling, please step aside for the black cloud that's suspended by nothing and absorbing all light to pass by you. I did find this article, and now it doesn't really give any specific stories, but this is, um, it was on netcentral.com articles. I'll put that link too. Um, Civil War reenactors experience more parano paranormal activity than any other living historians. <clears throat> now, I don't know how many groups of living historians we have in the U.S. I, I mean, we have Rev War and the Civil War. Right. Um, but I don't know. There might be others that I'm just not familiar with. Right. But I know there's like that Society for Creative Anachronisms, the SCA, and I had a friend who used to be in it, and they like get together, legitimately get together, and live like medieval people. Whoa, I've never heard of that. They go for a whole week sometimes, and there's all these kingdoms, and the whole uh, country is divided up into different kingdoms. They have, like, kings, and, and it's a whole thing. I mean, there aren't really... There's There were natives here in medieval times. There weren't... There's not... I, I hate whenever I say there weren't people here. There were people here. There were not Europeans here. Right, yeah, yeah. So so that part of our history wouldn't have been here at that time. So I guess it makes sense that they don't really see it. I want to know what's up with the ghost of the guy who wasn't dead. I, I want to know if that was just a prank or if that was... Was that... Did that guy have a time slip into the future? Like what... Oh my God, you're... You just, you just destroyed my mind. You destroyed my mind. Because he could... What if it was a time slip? That's what I'm saying. He's like, they look normal, but like not quite normal. What if... Oh my God, this would make such a great movie. What if someone finds a journal he wrote that no one knew about Ooh. and talks about this weird experience where he met people from the 2nd Massachusetts and the 27th Indiana and he didn't recognize any of them so he left looking for his actual regiment. Oh. I mean, I'm just totally making that up but what if that was the thing? Oh. If you're listening, I just 100% made that part up but I'm just saying. Well, but still, sure would be interesting. What if he's had a time slip? But see, all of our time slips we talked about, people went to the past. Right. Yeah. What if the reenactors had a time slip? <gasps> all together? Oh my god. Oh my god. Can is that a, Can you do that? Yeah, yeah, you can because remember when we talked about time slips, the guy had got. Yeah, you can. My brain's broken. I don't, I don't want a time slip. I would prefer not to. I'm all set. This time, you know, 2020. It's not great. But still not interested in whatever else there is because you just don't know how it's going to turn out. Or worse, sometimes you do know how it's going to turn out. I feel like if you start putting holes in the space-time continuum, it, it's... Things get a little It's shifty. hard enough to know what's real. Of course, you know, we're going to talk about simulation theory someday because right. I'm 99% sure nothing's real anyway. Mm -hmm. This is exactly what we talked about, what, last week? Yeah. No, nothing's real. 
it's all fake. So... So some of the most common reports from Civil War reenactors involve sights, sounds, smells, cold spots on the battlefield, even on warm, sunny days. And many reenactors report the smell of gunpowder even before the battle reenactments begin. Others tell of cold spots near particular buildings, ghost cannons. Oh, see, that was her experience, the ghost muskets. Yes. And or the sound of battle in the distance at early morning or in the evening. I've actually had people who are reenactors. I'm trying to remember the, the, the situation, but tell me that that's like a phenomenon they experience where they're like up early in the morning getting ready and off in the distance they hear the sound of battles. But like everyone who'd be involved in the battle right. is still at the camp getting ready. Ooh. So I, I've heard that. Yeah. And it's also been reported occasionally by tourists vis- visiting Civil War battlefields, but mostly by the reenactors. Some report to faintly hear moaning or screams in areas where the Union or Confederacy had set, sh- set up makeshift battlefield hospitals or sometimes in places where people didn't even know there had been battlefield hospitals and when they researched it later found out and another report is uh that happens i guess pretty frequently is meeting or seeing unusual soldiers in and around reenactments both union and confederate soldiers have been reported and typically the story involves brief interaction with these mysterious soldiers and then finding they suddenly disappear as mysteriously as they appeared and not just soldiers, there's been reports of seeing or meeting women wearing Civil War period clothing who seem to be wandering the battlefields. Because apparently they would, the women would go out to the battlefields looking for their fallen, their husbands, sons, fathers, whatever, who were missing. That's so sad. And, and another thing is hearing bugles in the distance, the sound of horses' hooves running. And before you dismiss it as reenactors having vivid imaginations, because you kind of have to to do that, Mm. um, a lot of groundskeepers for these places report the same experiences. I just, I wonder, you said it's like visitors and stuff don't really have as many experiences as the reenactors, but I wonder if it's just like the reenactors know all the people there, you know, and they know what's supposed to be going on where. Whereas when you go to visit one of those things. Right, so if I go and some guy in a Civil War um, uniform comes up to me and says, ma'am, and he's doing his whole period thing because I've had that. I've gone to reenactments and and they were like, oh, have you have you seen the second Massachusetts, ma'am? And you say, oh, I think they're over there. Thank you. And then they go off and you don't see them again because you don't know who's supposed to be there. And, and they don't all have these experiences, but there's um, roughly almost half have reported them. And some paranormal investigators theorize that because their Civil War reenactors are wearing authentic period clothing, that maybe the spirits who are there feel compelled to come forward or to talk to them, or maybe they feel more comfortable. But I, I had another thought. Um, you know, so sometimes they say spirits can be attached to items. You wonder if some of the people reenacting might have some antiques, like... Antique muskets or whatever. But I guess... Yeah. I don't know if it would necessarily be someone attached to that battlefield, though. Maybe it's just... Maybe it's the whole, like, feel of it. Or... And another thing that reenactors do, I do know from from when our family members used to do it, they usually have battlefield reenactments on the day that that battle happened. Yeah. That could have something to do with it. That's true. Yeah. I mean, it's in the place on the same day. Yeah. So the best part of this article is at the bottom. It says, do you think you have a haunting going on? 
Call 1-800-GHOST-HELP. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you think you're... Don't call Ghostbusters. No. Call 1-800-GHOST-HELP. That's great. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I don't even think that's a real number. I think that's too many. <sighs> that's. I think you can still call... I Because, like, yeah, I think even if it's too many numbers, you can still call. See what happens. Yeah, try it. Call 1-800-GHOST-HELP. Yeah, let us know how that goes. Oh, it's an actual website. Oh, cool. 1-800-340-8374 if you need help with your ghosts. That's amazing. Oh, and there's a bunch of people here, and they will all help you. I don't know what they'll help you do. Talk to them, get more of them, get rid of them, become friends with them, but... Right. All right, put the ghost on the phone. Yeah, okay, hang on. Honey... Honey, now I know, I know that was your house first, but she doesn't want you there. No. She bought the house. She doesn't want you there, honey. Sorry, sweetie, you gotta go. Honey, you gotta go. Just, it's just how it is. <laughs> it's been 350 years. So this wasn't too, this was kind of a little lighthearted. That's, that's mostly what I found for um, reenactive stories. Um, I'm trying to get more, though. Amanda, she said she has a lot more and that other people have stories. And I, I tell me all the stories you have. I love them. Yeah. No, that was really fun. Thank you, Amanda, for reaching out. That was really great. Yes, thank you, Amanda. And that's funny, too, that, like, it just happens to be something that we also used to do. Yeah, yep. That's so cool. All right, Tori. So, um, oh, I, I didn't blab for two hours for a change. So um, this might be a reasonably well, we'll timed see. We'll podcast see. for a change. We'll see. We still have the second <laughs> half. We're champion talkers. You, you usually manage to get right to the point, though. I'm, I'm the blabber. Oh, we'll, we'll see about that. Uh, this story, this story is, uh, it's actually a little tiny bit paranormal. So really, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, I love it. Mm-hmm, it was on. I mean, and, I probably hate it. You'll probably hate it. You'll definitely super hate it. But uh, yeah, I found it. I was watching an uns- an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, the like original Robert Stack episodes from the '90s, because I was actually starting to research for another story that I want to do later. That I think there's like a lot more stuff on, so I'm kind of trying to do it a little bit at a time. And this was part of that same episode. It was called, I think the, the segment of the episode was called Voice from the Grave. So, going to jump in. Yes. So, on the night of February 21st in 1977, the residents who lived at 2740 North Pine Grove Ave in the Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago smelled smoke, and they contacted the building's maintenance man, um, and he called 911, and at about 8.40 p.m. that night, firefighters put out a fire in what they thought was an empty unit on the 15th floor of the building. But once they put out the fire, they realized that the build, the unit actually hadn't been empty of people and that there was the body of Teresita Bassa. She was covered with a mattress, which is why they didn't find her right away. The mattress had been pulled from the bedroom and there was a knife in her chest and her clothing was removed. She'd been stabbed so brutally that the handle of the knife was slipped in between her ribs, which is just so heinous and terrible. And they said there were virtually no clues except for a note in Teresita's journal that said, get tickets for AS, and that was it. They didn't have DNA at this point, you know, they didn't have anything. So at the time of her death, Teresita Bassa was 47 years old. Um, She was working as a respiratory therapist at Edgewater Hospital, which is now defunct. Um, She was born in Manila in the Philippines in 1929, uh, and there she was part of the aristocracy. 
She was also apparently a world traveler, um, and in the 1960s, she moved to the U.S. so she could study music. Uh, she didn't seem to have any enemies at the time, and they said that uh, she did have a boyfriend and she'd argued with him before her death, but they ruled him out as a suspect pretty early in the investigation. So in the months following her murder, a man named Jose Chua said that his wife, whose name was Remy Chua, had begun to act less and less like herself. She'd apparently had recurring nightmares of being attacked and stabbed, and once had woken up from a nap to find Teresita standing over her. Did she know her? I'll, I'll let you know. We'll see. One night, Remy, yes, Remy took a nap at home, and after she fell asleep, she began speaking in another voice. And according to her husband, Jose, the voice said that it was Teresita Bassa and that she'd been killed by a nam man named Alan Showery, who was an orderly at the hospital where Teresita had worked when she was alive. Showery had apparently come to her apartment to help fix her TV and instead had murdered her and staged her body to look like a sexual assault, covered her body with her mattress, and then set the mattress on fire. The voice then urged Jose to go to the police to help solve her murder. That's how you do that's it. That's how you, I mean, that's, that's just how, how you get shit that's done. That's why you haunt. That's the only acceptable type of haunting, exactly. That's why you haunt. Right. So when Remy woke up, she said she didn't have any memory of being possessed by a voice, um, and Jose decided not to contact the police because he was like, they're literally just going to say that we're crazy. But apparently this kept happening, and uh, once when the voice possessed Remy again, it asked Jose why he hadn't gone to the police, and he said he didn't have any evidence against Shari. And the voice said that Shari had stolen some of Teresita's jewelry and given it to his girlfriend after he'd murdered her, and that the two were living together. And the voice said the jewelry was originally purchased in France, and then Teresita's father had given it to her mother before it was passed down to Teresita. So some, there were kind of, because the story was in the 70s, some of the, story, the sources were a little bit iffy. So some of them said that the voice even went so far as to give the names and phone numbers of friends and family members who could correctly identify the jewelry as being Teresita's. But, wow. I mean, I don't know if I believe... How do you go in there and get it, though? You would need probable cause to just go in there and get it. And you can't say, well, a ghost voice said... Right, exactly. You have it. Right, yeah. So... Uh, these two detectives, Stahula and Eplin, have been on the case since the very beginning. And obviously, when they got this tip from the Chua's, because the Chua's called their local, I think it was the Evanston Police Department, who then called these detectives. They, of course, were hesitant about taking this tip. Um, but apparently, what changed their minds was that Jose Chua was also a skeptic. But when he demanded from the voice that it tell him who it was, um, that he, he told, that the voice told him it was Teresita then he was like, oh, okay, now I believe you, which I'm like, mm, <laughs> that doesn't really what? seem like a <laughs> great logic, but I mean... How about uh, something only a family member will know and then we'll call one of these numbers and see if we can match up the info? Right, not like, hey, hey, ghost, no? ghosty, who are you? I'm Teresita. <laughs> oh, okay, now I believe in ghosts. You know, uh, like I mm. before I told you I was Teresita? Oh, I don't know. Something about when you said it this time. This, that I'm one convinced. really got me. That hooked me. Yeah. Yeah, that part I was like, oh, okay. I mean, sure. But whatever. So because they had had no... I'm, I'm a little skeptical of his detective skills, but okay. Is, like, are you really a skeptic? If the ghost just says, I'm a ghost. And you're like, well, I guess there's ghosts. Like... Not sure. That's all the evidence I need. Mm -hmm. Right. 
So because the detectives had had virtually no leads and this was now six months after Teresita's murder, they decided to look into the lead uh, and they tracked down Shari at his home and asked him whether or not he knew Teresita. And he said that he did and that actually on the night of her murder, he had been planning to go to Teresita's apartment to fix her TV, but that she'd called him and canceled. So then he went home to fix an electrical problem that he had at home. So inside of Shari's home, the detectives asked his girlfriend, whose name was Yanka Kamluk, if Shari had recently given her any jewelry. And apparently he'd gifted her several items, including a jade pendant and a pearl ring that he'd given her as a late Christmas present. I remember um, Teresita was murdered in February. And later on, these items were positively identified as being Teresita's. So the detectives then- That's incredible. I know. The detectives asked Shower to come back with them to the police station and he went with them voluntarily where they questioned him and apparently they caught him in a bunch of lies. Um, one of them was that his girlfriend said they didn't have any electrical problems at home and also that he wouldn't have been able to fix them if they did. <laughs> Which, yeah, ouch. Like, add insult to injury. Like, yeah, he probably was out murdering someone and he couldn't even fix our electrical problems. <laughs> So under this pressure with, you know, being caught in the lies and also knowing like the jewelry was Teresita's, he confessed to the murder. So as incredible as this sounds, it is important that Teresita worked at this hospital and so did Remy Chua and they were actually both respiratory therapists. Um, and Remy admitted that she had been to a party at Teresita's home sometime before her death. Um, and apparently it was also known at the hospital that Remy was afraid of Alan Showery. And she apparently also knew that Showery was supposed to fix Teresita's TV that night, but she didn't tell the cops that information because she feared Showery. Um, Showery also had previously reported Remy to her superiors for not performing her duties at the hospital satisfactorily. Um, and one source said that Remy had told a friend that she believed Showery had prank called her and that was just one night before she was first possessed by the voice of Teresita. Um, another voice said that on one day at the hospital, she walked by Alan Showery and immediately had a panic attack. And just a few hours before she began being possessed by Teresita, she'd lost her job at the hospital. Plot twist, Remy murdered Teresita and framed Alan Showery for it by giving his the jewelry to give to the girlfriend. I, I'm like slightly in the back of my mind, but like, I feel like they're somehow related to this. Uh, I don't know. Like, it's very, very bizarre. I mean, it might be paranormal, but it might also be a frame job. Right, or something. So yeah, nobody else had that had that thought, but I think that's so funny that you thought that because that's kind of that was my exact thought also. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, that's that's oh, Jose hates to be paranoid. Mm, not looking too good right now. Especially where Jose's like, I don't believe. She's like, can I talk to you for a second? Oh, look at that! I believe. Right. I was like, uh, <laughs> also, so I don't think that any of these possessions, like, they just happened in front of her husband. Like, I don't think this was ever in front of anybody else, you know? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's very, very strange. I feel like I would need more than that to put someone in jail. I mean... Right. So, the trial began on January 21st in 1979, so two years after the murder. And obviously, the defense tried to prevent the psychic testimony from being used, but the judge allowed it anyway. And 
the trial was dubbed the voice from the grave trial, which if you literally try to look up like anything about the story, every single thing is called voice from the grave, the voice from the grave, the voice from the grave, voice from the grave. So it's clearly like somebody hit on it and like that's what every single thing is called. And um, the centerpiece of the prosecution's case was this, uh, that Teresita spoke of her own death through Remy's lips. But the Chua's actually testified as witnesses for the defense, which I thought was really interesting, and there wasn't really any other information about it. I was like, that seems really super important. Well, they, I mean, I'm assuming they were called as hostile witnesses. Uh, because maybe the defense was trying to trip up this. I don't know. That seems like something, uh, an important point. I know, and then everybody's like, anyway, moving on. And I was like, wait, n- n- can you go back? Because, no. Uh, I need more information. Like, that seems so strange. And the the other thing is, I so here's the thing. If Teresita Bassa mentioned things that occurred to her during the murder that only she and the murderer would know, that still doesn't get Remy off the hook. Right, right. It really doesn't. Yeah, it's very strange. And then the Chua's never spoke about this trial publicly ever again. After, like, after the trial, they we never talked the about case. it. We opened the case. Right? Well, we opened the case. I mean, the thing is now, like, these people would probably all be, like, in their 80s and 90s, you know? Um, on the fifth day of the trial, uh, Showery admitted that the only reason he'd confessed to the murder was that the police had fed him information and that they'd threatened to arrest him as well as his, as well as his girlfriend, who was pregnant at the time which the 1970s in Chicago, Alan Shetri is black. I'm not really surprised by this information, you know? Or the 2020s yeah, in I was kind most of like, cities in the U.S. Oh, wow. He, yeah. Right, coercion. I am so very, very surprised, you know? So Yeah, I don't know about this story. I, I have my doubts. Yeah, it's very, very strange. Um... But apparently the jury was deadlocked, and after several weeks, uh, it was declared a mistrial. And Alan Showery had pled not guilty to his first trial, but before the second trial started, he pled guilty, which was against the, the advice of his legal counsel, and he was sentenced to 14 years in prison for the murder, and an additional four years each for aggravated arson and for robbery. But ultimately, he actually was paroled in 1983, so he spent less than five years in prison, even though his sentence was supposed to be more than 20 years. I think someone must have thought about that and said, mm, maybe we don't take ghost, ghost testimony from yeah. now on. Yeah, maybe we should try to avoid that. Maybe we should, yeah. <sighs> <laughs> yeah. Because I, I, at first I was like, yeah, you go, Teresita. But that now that I hear all this stuff about Remy... yeah. I'm not digging that. It's not like just some random person who wouldn't know the situation right. or know anything or doesn't have a have a horse in that race. Yeah. You know, just start saying, I'm having this. And then the person, they take it to the police. Mm. And she was like, I don't know. This entity, Tara Sitabasa, she knew them. She knew that guy. That guy had gotten her in trouble. Yep. She ended up losing her job. So she was already angry with him. She right. m- might have been... She worked with Teresita. She might have been upset with her from some reason or jealous that she still had the job, maybe. Or maybe even Teresita was asked. Yeah, Remy didn't lose her job until like six months after Teresita was murdered. Oh, okay. So it's really, really bizarre, 
Yeah, some people believe that the story is concrete proof of the paranormal or of life after death or of the possibility of possession. Um, and others say that Remy maybe just overheard or somehow otherwise discovered that Showery had been involved in the murder and she was too afraid of the repercussions that her family could face if she actually came forward herself. So she kind of either created these chances or maybe it was unconscious that this happened to her. Um, but like I said, either way, they haven't spoken about this since the trial. And I do think like the paranormal part of it is super weird. And we know that confessions can definitely be coerced. Um, but Alan Showery did still give the jewelry that was stolen from Teresita to his girlfriend. I mean, there's that. Which I don't, I didn't see anything where he explained where else he could have gotten it. You know, and Remy probably wouldn't know the names and phone numbers of all of Teresita's relatives who could prove that the jewelry was bought in France by her dad and given to him. Right. She probably wouldn't have known all that. Like, I, I would guess. don't know that. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe. But would she know their phone numbers? Right. I mean, yeah. And I mean, I only saw that. I only saw that in one of the articles that I read. So I'm not. Right. So that could be like. The game of telephone, where yeah. the story gets bigger and bigger. Right, exactly. But, I mean, the jewelry, I feel like, to me, is really the sticking point. Because I did, when I was reading this stuff, I was like, I really don't know that this guy did it. You know what I mean? And I, yeah. I definitely had that same reaction where I was like, what's going on with these other people? But also, like, if the Chua's did have something to do with it, why would six months later there are no leads on this case whatsoever? Why would they, like, bring themselves into it all of a sudden? Like, that seems really bizarre also. Yeah. Like, I I feel like I don't... But she lost, she lost her job after Teresita was murdered, but did she lose her job? I mean, did she lose her job before she started saying Teresita was visiting her? Yeah, like right before. So maybe... Um, I don't know. I don't know. Like, she just somehow wanted revenge on Alan Showery, but how maybe did the she girlfriend... didn't frame him for it, but how she, he, I mean, it would be weird. Right. She would have had to get the jewelry and he would have said, well, right. Remy gave me that jewelry. Right. Or she, like, I bought it at a pawn shop or whatever. Like, or I, yeah. So I guess, I guess maybe, yeah, my have an overactive imagination but I just <laughs> it would be pretty hard to make that whole thing work but that was my first thought was like huh that seems weird but I feel like they must have asked her some this is what I would do I would ask questions that only she could answer and then see if I could get in touch with other people and verify it people that Remy doesn't know and say well like I have a hit yeah so. yeah but it's and, a cool story, though. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the detectives obviously, like, got a lot of shit from their coworkers. They they said that, like, once it got out that this was how they'd caught the guy, like, they would leave phone numbers of dead people in their mailboxes and, like, throw the throw things at them. And, like, but I the one of the detectives said, like, you just have to keep an open mind because you can get a lead however you get a lead. You know what I mean? Especially you've been working on this case for six months and then something miraculous falls into your lap. Like, I'm not surprised that they went after it you know i've heard some people in law enforcement say no we've never used psychics we don't use mediums mm. they don't give give it and then i've heard others say yeah we've used them we've used them quite a few times so right. maybe 
I don't know what to think about mediums. I'm pretty skeptical of it, but then I think sometimes people, I mean, I know that we've had weird experiences and other people call in about them, but right. I don't know how I feel about, do I think people have the ability to control that? I know there's one-offs and right. weird things. Right. But I don't know. I guess that's why we do a podcast. Right. But that's a cool story. That's an interesting... Yeah, yeah. And Interesting like, story. I think it's interesting, too, that it's, like, this very, like, solid voice possession that's, like, these are the facts. This is what I need you to do. And then she, like, checked check back in being, like, Jose, you didn't go to the police. I told you to go to the police. I'm going to give you some more information. You're going to go to the... Like, it's very interesting, and I feel like not really like any other story that I've ever really heard like this. So... Let me explain how this is going to work, Jose. Right! I'm going to keep showing up and possessing your wife uh-huh. until you do what I need you to do. Yeah! Yeah, it's so weird. And that, like, Remy said she was having these, like, recurring dreams of being attacked. I'm like, hmm, that's very interesting. Yeah, it's just, Mm. yeah. But anyway, let me tell you about the sources before I forget. So, like I said, um, I watched that episode of Unsolved Mysteries from season two, which I think if you watch it on Amazon, which is where I watched it, it was episode 19. Mm -hmm. But if you look at some other places, it might be a different episode number because I think that kind of got jumbled over the years. Um, I also read the Unsolved Wiki page, which had some more in- in-depth information than what the um, than what the episode itself had. Uh, there was also a 1992 article from the Chicago Tribune, an article from Chicago Now, another one from DNAinfo.com, um, one from the Claremont Sun, and an excerpt from the book from Weird Chicago, which is called Bloody Chicago. Um, I didn't watch it, but there's also a movie based on the case called Voice from the Grave, um, as well as a book that was written by John O'Brien and Edward Bowman, which was called The Voice from the Grave, which was published in 1992. So if you want to know a little bit more information, that's where you can find it. That's a super cool, interesting story. I'd love to get the perspective of, like, others of her relatives or friends or, or... Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that it was on Unsolved Mysteries, even though... Like, the guy had already been in and out of prison for it by the time the episode Or as we aired. like to call them, solved it, solved mysteries. solved mysteries. I guess the unsolved mystery is the part where she came back and nailed her own killer. I guess that's the part that's not solved. Right, right, exactly. Because when I, when I started the episode and they were like, and this is the guy who did it, I was like, hey, wait, that's not usually how this works. Well, that was a great story, Tori. I'm glad you brought me that one. Oh, I'm glad you liked it. What did you think of reenactors... I did like it. What did you think of the reenactors' ghost stories? Oh, I thought they were so cool, and I'm so excited that somebody shared them with us, and I hope that we can hear some more, because that was really awesome and, like, creepy also. It was creepy, but this episode wasn't too creepy. This was pretty cool. Yeah. But um, we're going to end this, wrap this episode up, because we're trying to get these things down to an hour, and I know we're just yakety yakety. We're going to, we're trying to, we're trying to get it in, folks. We're trying to pull them in. But before we go, I just want to remind you to follow us on Instagram at Cul-de-Sac Insomniac, on our Facebook page, Cul-de-Sac Insomniac. Go to our website, cul-de-sacinsomniac.com, where we post all of our credits, music, images, um, all of our sources. Mm so that if you want to go do a little more research you can read up on some of these and if you have any spooky stories you want to tell us or true crime stories or anything you want us to research and talk about on the show we would love to hear from you at cul-de-sac insomniac at gmail.com 
Yes, and thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate it, you guys. This is so fun for us. Thank you so much, and we will catch you next week. Bye. Bye.